AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for November 1st, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we have kind of a special day because we got some new blood. Um, joining us online is Mike Klepper, uh, who is one of our colleagues at AT&T here. Um, but he works in kind of a parallel organization supporting our customers and whatnot. So uh, welcome to the show, Mike. And um, maybe you could just give me just a quick, since you're new to the show, give everybody kind of a quick brief on uh, where, what you do uh, for AT&T and where you work. Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm the Practice Director for Application Security, Threat, and Vulnerability Management inside of AT&T Consulting. And we provide uh, security services to AT&T clients to help them, uh, you know, get their business where they need to get it uh, in a secure manner. All right. Great. And as we know, uh, our customers, sometimes, some customers need more help than others. So it's good to, that we have people like yourself um, working for AT&T, helping support those customers. Matt and myself, we kind of work more on the inside of AT&T, only supporting ourselves. <laughs> but um, it's good that we have people like you uh, helping our vast array of customers that we have. Uh, so thanks for joining the show. Um, and we'll have some more discussion as we go along here. Uh, also on the couch uh, this week, we have uh, Matt Kaiser. Hey, Matt, how you doing? Good Welcome as always. Back. Yeah. Happy Halloween. A little bit late, I guess. Right. But. A little late. And we didn't dress up for Halloween, but uh, yeah, we're, we basically uh, dress as geeks every week. So or nerds or whatever. Um, and I'm John Hogaboom. So uh, let's uh, jump into the uh, first story. And I think this is one you're looking at, Matt, with relation to the Mirai botnet, which I'm yep. sure we've talked about on the show. I haven't been on for maybe a week or two, but oh, yeah. I'm sure it's been discussed. If um, our viewers haven't heard of Mirai at this point, they've been living under a rock. So Mirai is that massive uh, IoT botnet, the one that exploits machines using uh, weak SSH passwords. and No, right. actually Telnet passwords. I'm wrong. Telnet passwords on 23 and 2323 right. uh, to do massive DDoS attacks. So that source code was made public, and someone posted it to GitHub, and another researcher uh, going by L. Linsky on GitHub forked that code and made a modification to it to use the same kind of propagation methods for what I guess you could call an inoculation virus uh, oh, that they're calling okay. nematode. Okay. So yeah, so it's a kind of an interesting idea. It's not the first what I would call vigilante malware that we've seen. I know. Uh, Reincarna, we saw that. We right. actually reported on it a couple, maybe even a year ago. That was the one even that more. It seems like. Oh yeah. I feel like it's been probably about three years we've been watching. And actually, we have a slide later in the show. But mm -hmm. and then I think Linux.wifatch was a, another one. I'm not really sure if that's the same thing as Reincarna under a different name. That whole naming scheme is always a little bit confusing. Mm -hmm. But again, it's not the first time we've seen this. People have this this great idea, quote unquote, to go out and infect more machines to prevent people from infecting more machines. Right. Not necessarily, um, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. And mm -hmm. I understand that it's a, you know, for good intentions, but mm -hmm. it's still not necessarily legal to go compromise other people's devices. I would, I would just go so far as to say it is necessarily <laughs> illegal in right. jurisdictions to do that. Although, you know, to be completely fair, um, it is frustrating in some cases to know that this stuff is out there and there's not really an effective way to get all of the machines taken care of. I mean, you can ask the vendors to patch their stuff, but you know that not everyone's going to patch. Right. You can use laws to prevent these things from being 
these devices from being created insecurely, but that limits your jurisdictional power. You could only maybe do it in the US or a few other major countries, and you'll still have the old devices, which will stay online forever. I mean, there's so many important, incomplete solutions to this problem, and I can see why it would be tempting for someone to take what they would think is a complete solution by saying, I know how Mirai does what Mirai does. Let's take those exact same methods and use them to inoculate machines against Mirai. Right. So I can see why it's tempting, and I can see why it might be compelling. But at the same time, no one has that kind of jurisdiction or the right to go and break into all these machines, especially since even American law enforcement, I feel, wouldn't have that kind of jurisdiction. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are some um, authorities by which they can do that to machines in other countries. But you've got the entire world's worth of intermittent of, of you know, insecure things to deal with. Right. Yeah, I don't think that we should uh, comment on what is legal and what's not legal. All right. Um, but because uh, we're not lawyers. But uh, it is an interesting problem because, you know, like I said, we've been kind of watching this and talking about it on the show for probably about three years now. All this 23 TCP telnet scanning, these DVRs, these other IoT type devices getting compromised, getting recruited into botnets. And it's gotten to kind of a critical mass at this point where it's really become a significant threat. And you've seen, you know, some pretty significant DDoS attacks leverage, some groundbreaking ones uh, near the terabit, um, yep. you know, uh, per second uh, types of uh, volumes or bandwidth utilization. So, you know, you can understand why people are like, ah, we gotta get this thing under control, mm -hmm. but it's really not anybody, it's not any one person's thing to control from a good guy perspective. We don't yep. really have the means. The vendors who have put these devices or sell these devices generally don't have any way to notify their customers. It's not like people send their warranty cards in. You know, who does that for these kind of little disposable devices sure. that probably cost, you know, maybe 40 bucks or something, you know? So it's tricky. They're gonna be out there for a long time until a lot of awareness gets raised kind of globally and people either retire these old ones and maybe, mm -hmm. you know, new ones that are more secure get put in place and whatnot, so I guess we'll see. It sounds like the discussions that I've heard around um, botnet takedowns, things like Game Over Zeus, uh, that have gone successfully with some sort of you know, legal authority behind them. Right, right. Um, especially that one book, I think it's by Mark Bowden, called Worm, I think they're, I forget which, which malware it actually was, it might have been actually the Conficker working group. It's a good exploration of you know, how can you get a large number of people to, co to coordinate an effective response to a malware problem like this. Now, I don't think they used anything like vigilante malware to go in and disinfect, but they had other methods by which they could take over the botnet and dismantle it piece by piece. So maybe right. that's an alternative of method of dealing with this kind of problem. Maybe. Well, something, something probably needs to happen. Um, like, you know, we've seen this type of thing before where people have proposed you know, inoculation, or I think there's even been some people who have found um, that in the malware itself, for not necessarily this one, but other ones, that they have exploits that could be leveraged to, you know, make that, you know, you could compromise the bad guy's software, basically, right. to get it to go away. And there was um, actually some discussion about that for Mirai as well. I think there oh, was, was there? A, a paper, somebody, I may have been one of the guys from the Invincia, I might be wrong. But there was definitely something that came out in the last week. Someone was discussing different vulnerabilities they found in Mirai's command and control. Oh, which okay. might have also been another way to do that. I, I can't remember right. if it was against Mirai or against the Mirai C2 server itself, but mm -hmm. that was an interesting read. Well, long story short, it is a bigger problem and it's gotten, it's grown to a very large size and now we're all kind of sitting there 
trying to figure out how do we make this go away? Because we definitely, you know, as security people, this is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, Especially as, because it enables such huge volume DDoS attacks yeah. against the internet. I mean, it's, there, there's other, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, it, it has some potential for creating a lot of havoc and chaos and rather it wasn't there to begin with. Um, so pivoting uh, real quickly over to uh, kind of a related story about the hack forms. Uh, what, what, what was this So this one is about? an interesting one. It seems that the heat around the whole Mirai situation may be the cause of a major change at hack forms, which is a very well-known uh, hacking community online. A lot of people associate it with, with script kitty level types, but there are some real people on there who have skills as well. But hack forms voluntarily shut down their stressor and booter cell services section which is interesting because that was some, that's a place where people would go and they'd post, hey, I'm selling booter services. Right. I can generate this amount of traffic. Please hire my services. And it was well known that these, while they were being sold as legitimate you know, stress testing services for people who own yeah, web legitimate. properties, that's exactly <laughs> it, that they were actually being used a lot uh, for DDoS attacks against servers that were not owned by the people renting the services. So this has been shut down, it seems, because of the amount of heat around it. Uh, the operator posted and said, this is because I want my site to continue to exist, which suggests that he's got heat put on him, uh, right, pressure, right. and I guess increased scrutiny, most likely from law enforcement, if I had to guess. Um, but there's still plenty of things that are going on on hack forums, still selling malware and other sorts of other services. Um, and it's not going to get rid of the DDoS problem. Uh, there's a lot of They're speculation. They're probably just going to go somewhere They'll else. They'll go somewhere else. Although at the same time, those services did benefit from being reachable. I mean, right. people have to be able to reach your service for any business. And going someplace like Tor would protect them, but it would also limit the people that would be technically apt enough to reach the service. And right. a lot of the, the special services... A lot of services, people using it are probably not super technically apt. No, either. I mean, that's, there were a lot of very young folks that were using it to mess with their friends on online gaming because they didn't right, realize right. that it was an illegal thing to do. You would just... That's the thing you do, you know, you mess with your friends, you go and you pay for a few minutes of booter service and knock them off Xbox Live. Illegal, yes, but maybe it wasn't being marketed as such. Maybe they didn't make that connection. So it might remove a large section of the less technically apt folks, but it's not gonna get rid of the problem. Right, right. Let's pivot over to uh, you, Mike. This is uh, a story you're looking at uh, regarding selfie authentication. And uh, I really don't know much about this one, so maybe you could kind of step us through it. Yeah, so it's interesting. I came across this uh, this month, and it's something that's been going on uh, kind of in small circles for a little while now. It looks like MasterCard actually started playing around with selfie-based authentication in late Q4, Q1 of this year, uh, Q4 last year, Q1 of this year, um, for validating online payments. And ultimately what this is getting down to is um, trying to address the static password problem, right? Uh, I mean... Millions of static passwords have been, credentials have been disclosed, you know, people continue to select ones that are not overly strong. You know, you've got um, customers uh, or providers in the marketplace um, that don't want to overburden consumers with um, arduous security controls that might impact uh, their purchasing decisions or increase abandoned shopping cart uh, type metrics, uh, which, you know, very much drive you know, kind of online retailers. And so trying to find some method to enhance security while balancing that with user convenience is what I think is really driving this. Uh, for instance, Uber 
uh, uses it in cases to occasionally validate that you don't have multiple Uber drivers sharing the same Uber account so they can ask the driver to take a selfie uh, to prove that they are who they say they are. Um, actually, uh, both Alabama and Georgia, uh, the State Department of Revenue in those states are going to be using a solution called MorphoTrust here in this next year to use selfie authentication validated against DMV photos uh, for state um, revenue processing and, and presumably taxation payments, um, which is which is interesting um, that this is kind of starting to move into the government space. You're starting to see it uh, on the online payment space. You're starting to see it in some of the service provider areas like Uber. And I think that's sort of the first uh, sort of signs of something that's going to increase uh, because it is very easy because the quality of cameras uh, inside of mobile devices have become very, very good. Mobile devices are pretty much ubiquitous uh, amongst people these days. Um, so that's going to, again, drive that desire to consume. Um, but, of course, this is going to open up uh, some new concerns around the security of that authentication mechanism because ultimately, you know, you have a image. Uh, so the, the way these things are, are, are working from, from what I've, I've seen so far is a secondary app in most cases installed on the mobile device that you open that app. It asks you to blink your eye, tilt your head left, take some number of, you know, tilt your chin 45 degrees, things like that, uh, to try to uh, prevent replay attacks from well-known posted images on things like Facebook or other social media sites. But then what happens to that data? Uh, in some cases, it's stored on the user's mobile device, in which case you may have the question of, is that credential being stored on the device uh, securely enough? Other times you have that facial uh, recognition being stored on the service provider servers uh, to be matched against that authorization, uh, authentic, authoritative record, excuse me, uh, like in the DMV case. Um, so there's some, some questions about really the implementation there and where the representation of what that authentication data becomes comes into play. But you've already seen attackers starting to take on this as well. There's a banking Trojan uh, that's kind of making the rounds right now called AceCard that uh, it's, a, it's an Android banking Trojan uh, that actually not only asks users to enter in their card data, but then also asks their victim uh, to take a photo of themselves holding their card, their payment card, under their chin for verification purposes. Um, so at minimum, setting aside the concerns about the, the technical implementation of this type of, of authentication mechanism, we need to start educating our users about additional social engineering attacks that are going to be looking to capture this kind of data. Um, this is going to be another type of thing that we're going to have to account for as part of that overall um, security awareness training um, from a corporate perspective as well as, you know, kind of more broadly. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, interesting. I, uh, like, the, when you're starting to describe this, I, w I was initially thinking about, oh, I'll just have a couple of static images I'll hold up, but I guess this whole shift your head left, close your eye, That's pretty is cool. some means to try to prevent fraud. Uh, or whatever, prevent somebody from uh, using someone else's photo. And I guess if you try to make it force them to use the front-facing camera, that might help too, because it makes it very hard, right, to take a picture if you're, you know, 
if you can't see the display. And they're also (laughs) looking to combine this with some other biometric um, data in some cases. So, like, the the facial recognition piece is sort of phase one, but in some of the uh, research that I did, uh, some organizations are looking to uh, include this and kind of combine that with things like heart rate data off of your, you know, smartphone or your Fitbit. Um, mm-hmm. to kind of do a dual biometric thumbprint, if you will, of a specific individual, um, which then raises some interesting concerns about, you know, what qualifies as health data, what qualifies as something that's going to be subject to various privacy regulations. Um, and so you, the, all, as an idea, it's very interesting and could have some compelling use cases. Um, but, you know, things like, in men, you know, if you haven't shaved for a couple of days or, you know, if you had an accident, you know, you have a black eye or something, you know, caught an elbow playing basketball or whatever, this is going to impact the facial recognition uh, of that selfie authentication. So it's certainly not um, without its, uh, you know, kind of glitches still, if you will. Um, but uh, this is something that definitely it's, it's kind of, um, kind of on the fringe right now, but it'll be interesting to keep an eye on this as we move into 2017 and beyond uh, to see what the adoption rate is and what new security challenges um, that this you know creates. You know, just thinking about that, I feel like that's it's a very convenient way of authenticating, but I feel like it's not going to be one of the more ironclad ones. I also think, like you said, um, that you're going to have to have some ways of bypassing it, like things like you know voice if someone's got a cold has always been a problem. But like if you're using somebody's face, and even if they have the ability to, you know, close an eye or tilt their head, the facial recognition may not work if something major happened. If they had, I don't know, maybe they had a facelift done. Maybe something else changed about their physical appearance that they are not in control of. Right. And that locks them out of it. So there's going to have to be ways to do an end run around that anyway. And then you have the unique problem in that your brother. Oh, my goodness. Easily yes. pretend that he's you, since you have a twin brother. That's uh, that's a really good point. <laughs> I get I better get used to sharing all my uh, all my Gmail with him. Uh, I, and <laughs> yeah, this is interesting. I mean, like twins. I mean, not that that's a big problem, but that could you know theorize. Hopefully, you trust your twin not to try to. <laughs> right, but you know that that does suggest that there's got to be some. You know, it's got to be good enough that it can tell me from my genetic duplicate. But it right. also has to be flexible enough that if you have some sort of change, I get a haircut, I shave my, my beard off, I have in a new scar or a mm-hmm. new something on my face, it also accepts that or, again, has a way of, of modifying that. So it's, it's going to be a complex problem. Right. And one of the things uh, Mike also brought up was it'll be interesting to see, you know, if this is adopted more and more and people start to get more comfortable with this, you know, do we start to see more malware schemes using this? Like you said, you already have seen this one Android banking trojan or perhaps more than one. Um, and then there's other things like if it is saving pictures, where do they get saved? And um, the biometric stuff is another, you know, yeah. like the personal, whatever that is, PII. Yeah, imagine uh, how many different types of, of, of laws you're going to have to adhere to when you've got biometric data stored with credit card data you know, all, all those different regulations that may not, they may conflict with each other in certain places. Right, right. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting one. It's definitely, I mean, you know, the whole <clears throat> two-factor authentication, we know that there's some flaws in that already in terms of, you know, uh, when I say two-factor, I mean 
a lot of times your banking site will text you maybe mm -hmm. a code that you need to type in so it appears on your phone. So it's a different device than your computer perhaps, maybe not necessarily, and you're using that to um, you know, authenticate yourself. But that can be, that is not without its own problems for interception. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't necessarily have to have that phone to see that text message. So that's true, <laughs> right? Yeah. We, we know that uh, is a, a case. So there's a lot of challenges around authentication. So it's interesting to see um, the evolution and what people are thinking about in terms of new techniques. And my big question is, if this becomes popular, I know the major sites will probably do it right out of the gate, or at least they'll have spent the time and money to do it right. Mm -hmm. But some of these me the mechanisms, like putting in the the anti-replay attack stuff, I feel like once it gets popular, you're going to see a lot of not so great implementations of the same idea because it is convenient. Mm -hmm. So it's something to keep in mind that just because you've got facial recognition doesn't mean you've got facial recognition done right. Right, right. Well, if you think about it, there's only so many ways you can tilt your head or change your expression, particularly if you're seated in a, mo in a, in a, in a motor vehicle, right? So like in the case right, of, right. of the Uber example, I can't really do a very radical motion while confined in a driver's seat. Um, so, you know, some of those environmental factors are going to play into it as well. Good yeah, point. definitely, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I guess we'll see how it plays out over time here. So uh, thanks for bringing this one to us. This will be an interesting uh, kind of evolution to watch and see how it progresses. Uh, so the next story uh, is one that you're looking at, Matt, with web Bluetooth API security concerns. I don't really know anything yeah, about this Yeah, this one's one kind of interesting. So um, I hope I say the name right, but Lucas uh, Ogelnik put up a blog post uh, saying that there is a, a draft that seems to be getting towards completion of a web a W33C3 spec for allowing your browser to access data on Bluetooth devices using your laptop's Bluetooth radio. Okay, so the browser now has access to my Bluetooth radio is basically right. what you're saying. And then it can go sense what else is around. Yep. Now Bluetooth I'm not sure wise. if it's all versions of Bluetooth or just Bluetooth low energy or where it gets cut because um, I haven't been able to test this out. It seems like it's an experimental feature now in Chrome that you can go ahead and voluntarily turn it on. Mm -hmm. um, I think the concerns really come in when this gets, if it ever gets turned on without user interaction. Like if a website wants to access, for example, my Fitbit tracker, and it does so without me knowing or without me consenting to that sort of thing. Because this, you could consider it personal information, and it's, it's health information to a degree. I mean, it hasn't got my heartbeat, it hasn't got any sort of medical history, but it does know enough about me that it's a little bit disconcerting that other folks can access it without me knowing. And other Bluetooth low energy things, they don't typically have a back, to, back and forth, like a handshake. Like I didn't have to allow access to a device to, to get to talk to this. I think I'm saying uh, that right. But it's interesting because this is a new, it's kind of a new attack surface that we hadn't considered before is that now someone on the web, on a website, can right, reach out over my Bluetooth radio. Website or whatever, yeah. Well, that's, my, that's what I'm theorizing here. Yeah. Is it's, there's a malicious website, it calls these APIs, the browser says, okay, let's go and use Bluetooth, and it can do things like a site survey. What Bluetooth devices are in the immediate vicinity of this laptop? Or does that give you an idea of where the laptop is physically located and who's nearby? For example, if you've got a device like John's smartwatch, Mm -hmm. And when it gets pinged, it says, I'm John's smartwatch. Uh, it's interesting, who's John? If it says, who, John Hogaboom's smartwatch, that's even more interesting. Who are you sitting, by, who's sitting by the laptop at that time? And it, it's kind of a weird thing that you've got this Bluetooth as a, it's sort of a short range wireless protocol. It was always designed to be a short range wireless protocol. 
but now what you're doing is you're extending the ability to access it to people, complete strangers, over the internet. And mm -hmm. I feel like that makes it a lot more vulnerable. And if you have the ability to use Bluetooth in interesting ways, you might be able to open up attack surfaces that no one has considered yet because you've got this ability to do it from, from afar. You know what I'm saying? You get exposure yes. to devices you would never get exposure to. Uh, this, without the, you know, the in-depth details, this does raise interesting questions in regards to a couple of other issues that I've um, been looking at over the past couple of months. Uh, the first of which was uh, the ability to correctly infer a user's password based on the accelerometer data out of their Fitbit or smartwatch device, mm -hmm. right, um, with a very high percentage recovery chance, um, like 80% on a single try, 90% on, re on repeated tries. And then you combine that with um, uh, some attacks that had demonstrated that audio that was not perceptible to uh, a human could be embedded inside of something like a YouTube video and provide voice instructions to a computer when you start looking at like Cortana or other types of voice-enabled technologies coming um, to desktops and things like that. You can interesting, you have a very interesting kind of attack chain here that could be forming, uh, right? Where you go to YouTube, which is a legitimate site, you're watching a cat video or whatever strikes your fancy, which tells your computer to turn on Bluetooth and starts, you know, polling for some of this data. If they can get some of that data, not only do they know who it is, but they get some, you know, possible, you know, remote text capture type of uh, capability as well. Sure. And then similar to the, the, the commands you were talking about, there are some uh, advertising companies that are trying to build in those same kinds of, I mean, intentional, um, but encoded information into audio signals that other devices can pick up in the area and say, okay, right. my laptop is now sitting next to a television that's showing this show on HBO. And you know that because of the ID that was broadcast over your audio. Right. It's, you can't hear it, you can't but hear it's it. there, mm -hmm. and a computer can hear it. And, and they're using I that I think for, they've been using that for advertising, for advertising too, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. But it's interesting because that also, you know, if someone knows that information, it, it may be possible, it may not, but if someone can intercept that and say, okay, I also know that the, they're in the vicinity of this kind of device or this kind of content. I guess my question with this is what problem are they trying to solve that they needed to define this specification to begin with? I you know, I don't why, know. Why do I need to allow something to access my Bluetooth radio on this device? The immediate thought that I have is that if you can do this stuff over a web application, you no longer have to ship software with anything that you sell. Or you no longer have to have users sit down and install software who aren't used to installing software. Like if all they're used to do, like for example, no, if, if, you, if you left your, your sweet old grandmother and you wanted her to have a Fitbit, you know, and she didn't have a smartphone, but she had her old laptop and she had to install something on it, you may have to go and, and walk her through that. Mm -hmm. But if you can do it as a website and say, Grandma, you go to this link, you log in, and it'll do it all for you, that's much, that's much simpler. So I can see why that's valuable. So theoretically, we could deliver malware to all these other Bluetooth devices through the radio, too. Theoretically, <laughs> yeah. And, and Yes, with any sort of convenience, you're going to get, a, well, not any sort, right, but with, right. this, with this, you're going to get risk along with that convenience. Hmm. So hopefully the browser developers will put in some kind of controls that say, you know, ask you the very first time it happens, would you like, right. you know, website.com to access Bluetooth with a small explanation of what that entails and let them make that choice. Okay. That's interesting because... Uh, those types of, when I listen to that, um, what I think about is 
people clicking through warnings regarding mm-hmm. website certificates, right? Sure. And there's been study, there was a study done that was released a month or two back by Brigham Young that actually looked at um, a user's willingness to click through warning messages based on um, basically limitations to um, working on multiple things at the same time. Um, so that even in if they were trying to do multiple transactions, even to the point where they were clicking, like you know, the, the effectively the purchase link, that they would click through warning messages to be able to not interrupt their workflow because humans don't multitask terribly well. We, you know, despite all attempts to the contrary, mentally we are a single-threaded process uh, kind of kind of uh, organism. So I, I'm not sure that that kind of a control would be terribly effective. I think we'd see the same problems that we're seeing now. Um, just uh, with more kind of impactful consequences. Sure. Yeah. But on the other hand, I don't know that we have, do we have anything that's much better than that? And I'm not saying, I'm not calling anybody wrong here. I'm just saying that that's the way it's been done for most security situations. Like you got your, your Android app, and before you install it, it asks you, hey, would you like to make sure that these permissions are correct? Are people going to take the time to read through that and understand it? Or are they going to click accept because they want to play the new Candy Crush game? Right, right. You tell me. Yeah. That's interesting. I guess we'll see what comes of this. And um, I see that uh, it mentions that Chrome 54 has it experimentally yep. in there. So I don't know. If Might be time to play with it. it. In I fact, there's, there's at least one example on um, Lucas Ogelnik's website that he's created to test it. But there's also apparently within the Chrome developer documentation, there's at least a few examples of how to use those APIs. So I think it's an interesting little cross-section of both Bluetooth and web app pen testing. I feel like you, some of that pen test is going to start getting into the Bluetooth side of things, which we've got to Right, cool. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay. Well, I guess we'll see how this one shakes out as well. Um, okay. Uh, kind of transitioning, or we're going to segue a little bit into the internet weather. Um, this is an actual story, though, that I was looking at about LDAP being used as an attack vector in DDoS attacks. And um, it is, um, I guess LDAP has what's called connectionless LDAP. So normal LDAP is 389 TCP. um, And I think there's a secure one on on another port, which I can't recall. Um, But connectionless LDAP is on 389 UDP. And um, so so some security experts were looking into this. And um, they discovered that as of recently, this has been used uh, to uh, as part of DDoS attacks, mostly uh, kind of the reflection attacks. So you know how we do, we've seen DNS reflection or NTP reflection, where you can spoof the source IP, send a packet to a reflector, like a legitimate uh, DNS server, and then he'll send a much larger response, usually a larger response, back to the source IP, which is really the attack target. Um, so they've seen that LDAP has been used as well in this type of attack. And uh, so I pulled a quick chart up here, which I thought was interesting. So in um, our data, um, which we normally do for the internet weather, this is 389 uh, UDP, and it's um, the red is source. So normally you will see it show up as a source flow, because we probably won't see the uh, destination packets, or if we do, they're going to be small relatively. And then the responses, the reflected responses, will be bigger. Oh, I should mention that there were some quotes of perhaps 40 to 50 times amplification uh, from this connectionless LDAP. So uh, probably I would say around the middle, maybe like uh, October 13th is the first time around there that we actually started to see this used in 
um, reflection attacks on targets. And it's, there's some order of magnitude of traffic here. Yes, it's around, at this largest spike, it's about almost four and a half gigabits um, per second of traffic. But in general, they're about one and a half gigabits. Um, that's, you know, it's not insignificant. If I got hit with a gig and a half, uh, one and a half gigabits of traffic to my home IP, mm -hmm. yeah, that would, that would take me out. Um, but in general, we've seen much larger attacks from a, you know, an AT&T perspective. Uh, so there is that factor. The other thing I did is I took uh, right below here is a one-year view because I was kind of curious. I was like, really? I've never seen any of this attack traffic before uh, October 13th. And uh, sure enough, we really haven't. So this one-year view, which is the kind of skinny bar at the bottom here, shows that we only really have started to see this uh, in the beginning of October and all the way back a full year. I haven't seen any uh, such uh, activity of this nature. So interesting. Uh, the one thing I would say that makes me less worried, uh, the story kind of reported terabit size attacks. Maybe I'm a little skeptical of that because my gut, although I have not done the research on this, is that there probably are not that many um, LDAP servers exposed to the internet. Not as many as, I would, as there are Internet of Things devices. Why are you smiling? So I'm just, I'm just thinking before I started working here, I'm like, I don't know why anybody would put Telnet exposed either. That's just dumb. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and now I don't think anything yeah, surprises me. Yeah, there's a million me. and a half devices out there with Telnet exposed, yeah. Yeah. But um, my gut says there probably aren't as many LDAP. Um, and I could be wrong. Uh, you know, Shodan would be a way to quickly kind of tell, and I just didn't get a chance to check. Uh, so, you know, hopefully uh, I'm correct in that it can't be leveraged as much. Because if you have a small pool of resources that can actually be used as part of your attack platform, that's the less amount, you know, it's going to minimize how much traffic you can really generate uh, in total. But um, I guess it's a good one to keep an eye on. Anything that's UDP is fair game, right? We've seen that. Even like the Half-Life gaming server, that 27015 UDP, we've seen people scanning for that. Um, and that does provide some level of amplification, uh, NTP, DNS. I think we um, saw one on, about BitTorrent as well at one point. Yes, I think we have, although I don't know it's as easy to measure because BitTorrent is so noisy to begin with as it is. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, it'd be really one easy to, keep to an get eye on. peers, wouldn't it? What's that? It'd be really easy to find new endpoints on the BitTorrent, wouldn't it? Yes, yeah. You just join up and ask the question. Right. Where right. are you guys? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, there's probably some, yeah, there's probably some things that could be done there. So, uh, and there are other protocols too that aren't coming to me off mind. I know RIP was used for a small period of time, and uh, but again, it's anything UDP can be spoofed, um, and as long as the ser if the service will respond back with a bigger response than your one packet request, it's uh, it's a potential candidate for reflection type attacks. So. But this is the first that I actually uh, even recall ever hearing about it, much less actually seeing it. So, Did you mention SSDP? SSDP is another one, right, that I forgot about. So good point. Um, OK. Transitioning into the traditional internet weather report. Uh, this is the uh, topmost pro ports for October 31st. Uh, there's really not much significant change here. 23 TCP we've seen for like a year now is the lion's share of the most pro ports. It's also the 
um, most uh, sources probing, which we'll see in the next pie chart, but um, uh, you'll see 23 TCP, uh, which is Telnet, your SSH is the next one, 22 TCP. 2323 TCP, which we've talked about, or you mentioned, is the Mirai botnet activity. We're going to take a look at a chart on that one a little bit later. Uh, 3389 TCP, which is remote desktop protocol. I actually have a chart on that one as well to kind of show a trend. This is the most pro ports. Doesn't mean that there's a lot of actors doing it. It just means that they're doing a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So uh, keep that in mind here. Uh, not necessarily indicative of botnet activity, but you do, when a botnet is big and it's doing this a lot, it will show up in this pie chart as well. 1911 TCP is probably not anything to necessarily worry about right now, but is that Tritium Niagara Fox AX. building automation? Yeah. It's surprising that it always shows up on the top of the list. I think I'm not there's quite at least sure. one research organization keeping an eye on there it. There is, but they're keeping an eye on, on a lot of different ports. So I'm not quite sure why that one shows up uh, more than others, unless maybe, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. In any event, uh, when we look at who's responsible for that scanning activity, it does look like a small number of sources from a kind of good guy researching organization doing most of that scanning. Uh, 21 TCP is your FTP. Um, this actually has been up in the top 10 for a while now. It's kind of hard to pinpoint any particular actors involved. My hunch would be that they're looking for FTP servers to use for whatever purposes, looking for uh, ones that allow anonymous uh, file access for rewrite so that they could use it as a means to um, you know, dump files up there or other things of that nature. Um, NTP is in there. That's probably scanning, looking for open NTP reflectors. You've got web, you've got the SMB uh, uh, Windows file sharing on 445 TCP, and then Microsoft SQL Server on 1433 TCP. So real quickly, uh, this is a, actually this is not 90 days. I need to update this chart. It's actually a full year view. Uh, this is a one-year view of um, scan probe activity on 3389 TCP remote desktop protocol. And the point I wanted to make here is that this is scanned all the time. It's probably in the top 10, certainly in the top 20 for ever since I'd been here. <laughs> um, but because it allows devices to get remote access to the machine. Um, but the kind of change in trend that is more notable here is that you can see that there was a lot more kind of uh, upward trend, but it's a lot of uh, highs and lows peaks in terms of scanning. So there's just more activity in general in scanning, um, which I don't know necessarily what that means. I didn't go to pull a list of what sources are involved. It's probably a lower order number of sources than a big botnet, um, but I don't really have counts on that. But something to consider, if you have remote desktop protocol open on devices that face the internet, first of all, I would not recommend you do that. <laughs> um, and, uh, but if you do and you have to for some reason, you should try to prevent, you know, limit to only uh, address blocks that need to talk to it using some kind of firewall policy um, uh, and have strong passwords on there. Uh, for sure, because there are definitely devices that are brute force, brute force password guessing on this all day, every day, probably a thousand times a second on your machine if it's accessible to the internet. So uh, this is the top 10 most sources probing. So this is usually more indicative of botnet related activity uh, because you've got large number of sources uh, probing on these ports. And 
unsurprisingly, 23 TCP and 2323 TCP are at the top here. Uh, that's Telnet, and then I should have mentioned 2323 TCP is kind of an alternate Telnet port. I think Cisco might use it a lot, um, but there might be some other uh, types of appliances that do as well. We know that the Mirai family of malware uh, has integrated 2323 TCP scanning into its um, scanning activities. Still, far less in volume than the 23 TCP, but there are a lot of other families of malware out there scanning 23 TCP telnet. So, you know, you got to factor that in as well. Um, other than that, most of these are not as interesting. 22 TCP SSH would be the other one I would be keep an eye out for. We know that there are actors that are scanning for uh, 22 TCP SSH and brute force password guessing once they find devices, just like they do with Telnet. So that's one to keep an eye on as well. Uh, this is a quick chart on the 23 TCP Telnet scanning. This is the three-year view. And um, I've shown this before, and I updated it um, uh, before the show here to kind of get the past few weeks or maybe a month since I last got this chart. But you can kind of see the progression where back in early 2014, we really had nothing. There was no scanning on 23TCP, or it was basically insignificant. Um, around January 31st, uh, it went from about 1,000 scan sources per hour to 40,000 scan sources per hour, which is definitely somebody building a botnet out. Um, the next significant peak was maybe about a year later. In 2015, there was a, another big resurgence, uh, reaching a peak of 150,000 scan sources. And then June 1st, 2016, we had a really big uptick in the middle of the summer here uh, to 250,000. And then even more recently, uh, about a month ago, we went and reached a peak of about 450,000 scan subs per hour. Now that's a per hour count for us. If you were to try to aggregate that across a day, it would probably be in the millions of, you know, not mi many millions, but maybe a million and a half, something like that, of unique source IPs that we see. Because it depends on where they scan and times of day and what areas that actually cross us that we can see. Um, so uh, uh, since then, it has kind of, or at least maybe kind of leveled off a little bit around the 300,000-ish scan source in terms of a total. Still, that's pretty significant. Um, there's a lot of power uh, available to someone who would have access to all of these devices. And again, it's really not 300,000. It's probably a million or so when you aggregate them all up across the span of a day. Uh, this is the 2323 TCP. Uh, this is a 30-day view, and it kind of shows the emergence of Mirai uh, around September 12th timeframe here. And um, I guess it's about 55,000 scan sources at the initial peak there, and then it kind of settled down. That doesn't mean that there aren't 55,000 bots out there still um, involved in that botnet. It just means they might not be scanning as aggressively as they were uh, previously. Uh, but there's definitely, you could see prior to this time, really nobody was scanning on this port. Uh, and since that time, we have seen some levels of activity. It's actually had a kind of a little uh, resurgence uptick here. This volume on the right-hand side of the chart is a little bit more than it had been uh, in prior weeks. So uh, something to keep an eye on. Could be rebuilding itself a little bit. Um, and again, these are lots of IoT-type devices, uh, home routers, DVRs, 
all those little embedded appliances that run Linux underneath um, some sort of embedded Linux um, and exposed Telnet uh, have been getting scooped up in this botnet. So I wanted to just cover two more real quickly and then we'll be done. But I figured while we're talking about IoT bots, I thought it'd be good to ch check in on some of these other ports that we've known about um, that are also used as part of IoT type devices and get recruited into botnets, but have kind of been forgotten. I don't want anybody necessarily to remember that they're out there uh, and start scanning on them you again. Don't put but it on, on the internet or anything. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, in general, these are ones that we've discussed them over the years. Um, so both of these are 2014, around the 2014 timeframe in terms of uh, when they were first kind of discovered. Uh, the first one is 3270-64 TCP. This is a backdoor on several older type of routers like Linksys, Netgear, Diamond, these home router type devices for the most part. Um, and uh, the majority of the current scanning, there's not a lot of scan sources, maybe about 400 to 500 per hour that we see, which compared to the hundreds of thousands is pretty insignificant. Um, but still, there's some volume of them doing it. They're doing some repeated scanning behavior. And for the most part, um, a lot of it's coming out of some sources in Korea, South Korea, just to clarify that. Um, so uh, I wanted to keep an eye on, uh, you know, if, you're, if you have an older Linksys Netgear, you should go look up, if you just Google this port, you'll be able to find some write-ups to find out if your router is affected by this vulnerability. And it's some, I can't even remember the details on how you exploit it, but it's basically an open port that you can access, and I think you put in some really well-known default password and you're in. Um, so uh, just want to keep an eye on. Uh, the other one that's kind of similar is this Netis home router which is uh, on port 53413 UDP. This one is, I think we've, we've discussed this one on the show before as well. This one I thought was interesting and I wanted to show it, not because the activity increased, but because it's so significantly decreased to the point that it is almost flatlined to a very consistent flatline, which is kind of interesting to me. So this is a kind of a six month view. And if, we, you know, if this was us looking back in the uh, early summer, to midsummer, we said, oh yeah, look, they're really scanning. You see these very kind of telltale sawtooth waveform patterns where you get a really quick initial spike and then a decay on it, an initial spike and a decay. But since I would say maybe mid-September, um, it has really gone down to basically nothing. Um, you know, maybe a thousand or so scan sources per hour versus the 55 to 60,000 that we had seen. Um, you know, uh, earlier in the year. This is a really easy one to exploit too, but I don't know how many devices are really out there that can be compromised, but it's just, you just send a UDP packet. With you don't even have to send it with the right source IP. And uh, it has an instruction in it that tells the, the device on where to go get the malware and install it. Like it'll say, you know, TFTP this file and then run it. You know, it's basically a Linux command that you can stick in there. So, um, Interesting to me that about the time Mirai and some of these other ones really came on the upswing, that Netis was basically abandoned, um, where we've seen you know, a decent amount of activity before in terms of scanning and recruitment. Uh, so mm. I don't know what to make of that, just an observation. Um, you make it <laughs> out of that what you will. So uh, anyway, um, but that's the only uh, ones I had there. So that's the show for today. Uh, thank you for joining us. 
If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrackatlist.att.com. You can also find the AT&T Threat Track program on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's also available on YouTube and iTunes uh, as an audio uh, podcast on iTunes. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Um, our handle is at ATT Business. And uh, thanks, Mike, for joining us. I really appreciate having your insights and perspective on the show. So thanks for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. All right, great. And thanks, Matt, as well. Um, I'm John Hogeboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.